0: Hi, I'm Fiona. I'm Kenneth. And welcome to The Fly.
1: Fiona, how's your day been?
0: It is great. Yesterday was the last day of class, and we spent our first study day driving down to Annapolis.
1: Great way to spend our study day, in my opinion. Uh, We went right down the beautiful Highway 50. We go chat with the 62nd Governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan.
0: We had a great conversation talking about bipartisanship, post-governor life, the future of the Republican Party, and 2024.
1: So if you want to hear about all that, you know, some funny stories from his time in office, stay tuned. Let's jump right into it.
0: Welcome to the final episode of season 13 for The Fly. We are here with the 62nd Governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. We are so excited to have you here.
2: Well, I'm really excited to be with you. Um, I didn't realize it was the final, the final show, so uh, yes. I'm, I hate to see you go. I mean, <laughs> I understand it's been really great, and, uh, but I'm, I'm very honored that I got a chance to do the last show with you.
1: Hey, I mean, we're sitting here in, uh, in your office right now. We can see behind us the Whole Foods, the Bed Bath & Beyond. So, I mean, we'll just jump into it, ask the question everybody's thinking. I'm sure you heard the news. Bed Bath & Beyond is going bankrupt.
2: Yeah, you know what? I think it's uh, it's terrible. It's been around for a long time, but it's like you know, it's a maybe a little bit of an outdated concept. Obviously, you know, people are buying a lot of stuff on Amazon, and some of the big boxes are just uh, putting. There's a lot of turmoil in retail, but you know, the silver lining is my wife. Uh, you know, we just moved out of the governor's mansion into a new house, and she said they're going to have great sales at Bed Bath and Beyond and going out of business sale. Maybe we pick up some stuff for the kitchen or the bathroom. You know, get some new towels.
1: So I mean, how's the post-governor life treating
2: you? It's really good. Um, you know, it's a little bit of an adjustment. Right. Eight years of really being focused, having a huge team, and having goals, and working on important issues, and having state troopers take you everywhere. <laughs> to uh, now, I'm sort of getting back to more like the real world, and yeah. uh, you know, some people I think have a hard time with that adjustment, and they really hate going back to that. But I, I really am enjoying. I loved being governor. I really am proud of our team and a lot of the things that we were able to accomplish. I think we did a pretty good job for the people of Maryland, but I'm enjoying post-governor life. I'm I'm like actually shopping at Whole Foods and driving a car and things like that that I haven't done for eight years. (laughs) So what do you drive? Um, I've got a Tahoe, um, which looks similar to the black uh, Suburbans they drove me around in eight years, but only... if I sit in the back seat, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. I have to get it actually into the front and start the car and drive it myself. Go figure. So <laughs>
0: let's, let's zoom in on your time as governor. Yep. You were one of the only Republicans to win Maryland statewide and one of the bluest states in the U.S. Yes. And you won re-election in 2018 by 12 points. Yes. How did you do it?
2: Well, you know, it's so in, in 2014, I was elected. It was the really the biggest surprise upset in America. We have had only elected one Republican statewide for anything in 50 years. It's it is either the bluest or certainly one of the bluest states in America. Hillary Clinton beat uh, Trump in Maryland by 31, and Biden beat him by 33. So just to give put it in perspective about you know how difficult that is. And in 2018, in the middle of those two races, it was a really big blue year all across the country. We were in a deep blue state with this gigantic blue wave, and I was able to you know have kind of a double digit blowout. And uh, it, was, it was quite an accomplishment. I mean, it, we, I ran 45 points ahead of Donald Trump. Um, I had to convince not just the Republicans, but independents and Democrats that I was, you know, that I cared about them and the state and that I was going to focus on issues they cared about. And I, my, my whole brand was really about, you know, working on bipartisan common sense solutions. How do we bring people together? How do we meet in the middle? You know, my legislature was 70% progressive Democrats and I was a Republican, yeah. and yet we found ways to compromise and actually solve problems, even though we had maybe different opinions and we came at it from different directions. It was really about working together, and that, that resonated with people. So, you know, it turns out Republicans liked it, independents liked it, and Democrats liked it. They were like, hey, what, what a refreshing change. You know, mm-hmm. people are actually talking to one another in a civil way, and they're actually solving things. It's kind of the opposite of what happens in Washington yeah. most of the time, and it was refreshing. So people are, you know, we left with very high approval ratings in every demographic, and I was I was proud of that because every day I'll go if I'm walking next door at the store or one of these restaurants or, people will say I'm a lifelong Democrat. I never voted for Republican in my life, but I voted for you, and I'm glad I did. And thank you, you're a great governor. I mean, you know, you had to earn those votes, mm-hmm. and they had to believe that in spite of the party affiliation, in spite of the fact that we we didn't really agree on every issue that um, they thought I was uh, a good governor that was looking out for them.
0: And that really says something in the polarized environment that we're living in. So can other Republicans replicate what you've done?
2: I, I, I sure hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm a little concerned about uh, where the party is. I think, I you know, I, I say uh, successful politics is about addition and multiplication. And we, have, we only win by convincing swing voters that we have the right ideas and... We're, we have the, the ability to get things done on issues they care about. And we keep, you know, subtracting and dividing and alienating people. And so, uh, you yeah, there are people moving uh, to win a Republican primary and focusing on issues that they think will resonate with the base, but they're not thinking about the general election and how do I appeal to a broader audience and get more people to vote for our party. And we don't get to govern if you don't win the general election. It doesn't matter what the fight is in the primary. So I think we proved that there is a path, that is a better way, that it can be done even in the, in the most difficult environment. Um, and I think it's something that the party could learn a lesson from in nationwide elections. Whether, they, whether they're whether they going to follow that or not is the question. It's a, I think we're in a period of time where it's a little bit of a fight for the soul uh, in the direction of uh, the Republican Party. And mm-hmm. are we going to get back to appealing to more people and winning elections, or are we going to continue to lose, which is what we've been doing the last three election cycles. So even after
1: Dobbs, though, do you think that the state houses, the state governorships are still winnable for Republicans? I think
2: it's a states? very difficult environment um, for Republicans mm-hmm. because uh, people, I, I think the Dobbs decision and the way that uh, some of the Republican legislatures are reacting to it is you can see the poll numbers we're shedding, you know, suburban women in huge numbers and I mean that's an issue that, you know, it's, that we should be debated and people are passionate about their positions, but the way we talk about it and the way, I don't think, it, most people are not extreme on that issue on either end. They kind of want to come up with a, you know, they understand that, that there's a balance. I just even on that, even on something as controversial um, as that and that drives people's emotions, you can still sit down and have a reasonable conversation and maybe come up with reasonable things in the middle. Um, but I think the party's got a big problem with focusing on relitigating the 2020 election, you know, pushing conspiracy theories, um, and pushing you know, social issues that are turning off a lot of folks. It's like what the average person wants us to focus on mm-hmm. is the economy and jobs and providing opportunity and, and improving our schools and keeping our communities safe. Those are the issues that Republicans can win on Uh, if they focus on them, but that's not what they're talking about.
1: For sure. Hmm.
0: And a lot of those extreme issues, the conspiracy theories, the thoughts about the 2020 election being stolen are coming from Trump, who has fundamentally changed the Republican Party. Yes. Now he's been indicted. What does that mean for the future of Trump and Trumpism?
2: Well, it's a great question. Um, You know, I, I didn't always agree with the president. I was pretty outspoken when I think a lot of Republicans were afraid to be. It didn't mean I didn't agree with him on some of the policies, but I thought he, he you know, he really damaged the brand of the Republican Party and lost us a lot. Of, we, we lost not only the White House, but the Senate. Uh, we lost the House and then sort of barely got it back. We should have had picked up 40, 50 seats in, la- in the last year's election, but we didn't. We lost governor's races. We lost state legislative bodies. I mean, it's a pretty bad wipeout for Republicans for six years in a row. Um, and my thought is we have to move on from that to be successful. Um, I don't want to double down on failure and, you know, repeat the same mistakes. I think we need to be a bigger, broader tent, bigger tent party that appeals to more people. And I don't I think we need to move on from Trump to be successful. Having said that, though, uh, it's not happening. So uh, there are there's a pretty good chunk of folks that do want to move on. But right now, the latest polls have Donald Trump with more than 50 percent of the Republican primary voters. I think he has very little chance of winning a general election, but a really good chance of winning the Republican primary, which, you know, I think is a bad, uh, bad thing uh, for the Republican Party and for the country.
1: So, say he actually gets convicted of one of these charges. Do you think that that helps him hurts him? Like, well, what happens?
2: I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. I think on the New York case that they came first with a, lot, a large percentage of people. Thought they were being unfair, um, that it was overzealous pro- uh, prosecution. That the, I don't think it was the right one to focus on. I think some of the stuff with the election uh, in interfering with the election results in Georgia, and some of those oh, yeah. are. I think have more of ability to stick and they're still being investigated. We haven't seen indictments yet, but I think the weakest case they started with, and it was a bad mistake because most people were like, oh, this is not fair. Some thing a long time ago, personal stuff, what does this have to do? They're just, they're just going after him. And he actually went up in the polls by about 15 points because he got indicted. Now yeah. we've never had a president impeached twice and indicted who, you know, who gets more popular rather than less popular. And here, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> we saw it. Yeah. For right?
1: <laughs> so obviously, though, if he doesn't win the primary, which I guess we're talking about is pretty likely at this point, but say he doesn't runs as a spoiler candidate, what does that look like to you? Do you think he has a chance as an independent?
2: I think that uh, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that he's going to do that, uh, but uh, you know, it's I think it's just too early to know what's going to happen. I, I think um, you know a year. It's a year before the first primary, right? And that's an eternity in politics. What we all think we are seeing and predicting now might be completely different six months from now or nine months from now or a year from now. So I would just caution people to, you know, we don't know. Like a year out from the 2016 election, Jeb Bush was guaranteed to be the president. He was the nominee, had $150 million, he was at 35 percent, Trump was below zero, below one, didn't even register, and he became the nominee and the president. So. You know, something that we're not seeing might, might happen between now and then. But I don't know what, I don't. I can't predict.
1: In a hypothetical
2: Republican primary, who would you vote for? It's a really great question. I have a number of friends. I know almost, I know everyone just right. about in the race. I served with a bunch of them. Yeah. So, you know, when I became governor, I, I was governor through three presidents. Right. And, uh, and, um, I, and Trump was in the middle of it. But I was governor while Obama and Biden were president as well. But I, when I came in... Uh, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, uh, they were all on the uh, the RGA, Republican Governors Association, board with me. I was a freshman in the first year, and I came in and got on that that, that group. I was the chairman of the National Governors Association. So some of them were like the first two years we overlapped. And then, and of course, Mike Pence went on to be uh, president. Nikki Haley went to the U.N., and uh, you know Chris Christie's term came to an end. but. They're all friends, all of them. Uh, Tim Scott, uh, you know, is a great guy and senator from South Carolina. Um, I think we have a lot of, uh, potentially, uh, Chris Sununu from uh, New Hampshire might be a candidate. He's not now. Glenn Youngkin just said he wasn't going to be a candidate, but he's kind of a new governor that, you know, I also served with. In the last two years, the other guys were in the first two years. I I was sort of became, I I was a freshman and all of a sudden I was like the dean of the delegation. Like it seems like it happened really fast. Now I'm the retired guy. But I think we have a lot of good candidates, but no one is getting traction. And people say, well, who's the guy? If, If we don't want Trump or DeSantis, who do we go with? And I don't know who that is at this point. And while I respect and admire and like almost all the candidates, I don't see someone at this point stepping up. They're all stuck they're all in single digits, they're not getting attention, they're not getting traction. DeSantis uh, was the guy everybody talked about and he's dropping like a rock. He's dropped in half in the past two weeks, I think. And Trump picked it all up, not the other next tier candidates. For
0: sure. You are involved with No Labels, which has teased running a third party candidate if it's Trump-Biden in 2024. Tell us about that.
2: Well, it's not something that I've really been pushing or that I'm that involved in. Um, they asked me a couple of years ago because of my kind of bipartisan stance and you know w- willingness to work across the aisle. If I would be the honorary co-chairman of No Labels with Joe Lieberman, mm-hmm. and I really do believe in what they're trying to do. Their their main focus is trying to bring about bringing people from the left and the right to the middle to get things done in Congress. They have a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus, and I worked together with them to pass the infrastructure bill. We got Democrats and Republicans in the middle to try to say, hey, we have to fix the broken infrastructure. Democrats were pushing, you know, build back better, $4 trillion more. The Republicans only wanted to do roads and bridges, and we kind of brokered a compromise. So, no label is a great organization. I believe in what they're doing. This thing, it's basically the way they describe it is, an, in case of emergency, break glass. Like... If 70% of the people in America do not want Biden or Trump to be president, and yet those are the nominees, that maybe they have to provide an alternative. And so no third party campaign has ever been successful. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been a long time. It's 1992 last time, you know, Ross Perot ran with Clinton and Bush and got almost 20%. That was the high watermark, you know, so it's not the most feasible thing. However, I understand why people are so frustrated and angry at both parties and the far right and the far left. If ever there were a possibility, it would be now. I mean, there's never been a time in my lifetime when there weren't more people jumping from the Republican and Democratic Party to become independents because they're just, they're like lifelong Democrats or lifelong Republicans who say, you know, I've just had enough. Um, And they do care. They're fed up with the divisiveness and the dysfunction Mm -hmm. and angry, toxic politics. Does that translate into a real campaign? I don't know. But they're not trying to start a third party. They're talking about, in case of emergency, these two candidates. Let's say, to your point, Trump's indicted multiple times. He's, you know, something is really sticking. Let's say President Biden is in worse shape than he is now. He's 80 years old. It's health problems. And these are the two guys. Well, they're going to they're they're working to get access on the ballot in all 50 states. And they could uh, not start a new party, not do an independent thing, but. They could put together a unity ticket. Like, let's have the courage to put the country first above party and get a Republican and a Democrat to run together and say, "Hey, we just want to we just want to put America back on the right track." And then, when they're done, go back to the two parties. They're, they're not going to run people for other offices. So it's uh, a lot of people are. That's that's the thing lately. Everyone's asking about. Yeah. Before they were kind of dismissive. But now all the national media are asking the same question you just asked, and they're taking it seriously. They're like, well, it could happen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm not, I keep saying I'm not really involved because of my, my loose affiliation as the honorary chair. They're like, they think I'm pushing it so I can run for president. And it's really not. It's not what it's about at all.
1: But if they called you up,
2: well, what would you do <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, I think, well, I didn't rule it out. So I, I decided not to be a candidate in the Republican primary. I didn't think there was a path. I thought too many people splitting the vote, you know, was going to make it more likely for Trump, which I didn't think was good. So I, I stepped aside and I was, you know, said I didn't need to do that on a personal level. They asked, well, what about would you? And I just basically kept, I didn't, I didn't open the door, but I maybe, maybe left a crack. Like, I, I, you know, it's not, I'm not pursuing it. I'm not talking about it. But I don't want to say no a year from now. Who knows what we what, what we might have to do? It's fair, you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: we've been talking about the presidential race for twenty twenty four, but on Monday we heard some big news that Ben Cardin, Senator Ben Cardin from Maryland, is retiring. I imagine your phone has been blowing up with a lot of people yeah. asking, "Are you going to run?" Who has been in your ear? Well,
2: it's funny. Um, that's exactly what I was saying. It, it. They were like, "Is your phone ringing?" I was blowing up, you know. So you, um, yeah, it's been. It's been a kind of a wide variety of folks, um, and I under, it's understandable because I'm like one of the only Republicans to ever get elected here in a long time, and we haven't elected a Republican member uh, of the United States Senate since 1986, <laughs> so that's quite a while. Um, and so when a seat opens up, um, you know, they obviously go to the guy, with the Republican, with the highest, of, you know, kind of job approval. It's not something I'm pursuing, but yeah, my phone has been, I mean, half the people in the Senate... You know, national donors, national organizations. I mean, it's like it's it's like, but it's also all my friends in Maryland and my supporters and contributors. Like, please, why not? Even my wife. I went home and my wife's like, "Why wouldn't you consider running for the Senate?" I was like, "You too." I'm getting beat up all day. You
0: can't go anywhere. I finally
2: went home over dinner. I'm like, she's like, "Well, you should consider it." Um, Should tell her (laughs) to run. That's what I said. (laughs) Why don't you run? I just never aspired to be a United States senator. Frankly, I loved being governor. I, I've, I've run. I've been a you know CEO, started businesses and run businesses. I like being an executive. I like to get things done. And frankly, so I, that's why the job of governor was great in executive capacity. I made decisions every day that impacted people's lives, and I could make a difference. The Senate is almost a completely opposite job. It's not to say it's not an important job, but it's it's all about arguing and debating, and a uh, hundred people that don't seem to get that much done and there's a lot of kind of name calling and things foot dragging and it's, I just don't think I would like doing that. And so they're like, but you could win. And I was like, I know, but then I'd have to be a senator. <laughs> That's <true>. That's <laughs> and for six years I have to drive to DC every day for a job I didn't, that I'm not that passionate about. So The last election, Chris Van Hollen, our other senator, was running for re-election, but Washington Post did a poll showing me beating him by 12 points. So they went; they were going berserk two years ago or a year ago, and I said I didn't want to do it, and now they're coming back again because the seat is open. But maybe one of you might be a better choice. I don't know if anybody lives in Maryland. Well, I <laughs> am. Rockville, maybe. Rockville, you yes. might, you know, let's talk after the podcast. you talk to any, uh,
1: <laughs> any other governors turned senators? Do you yeah,
2: them? I've talked to a lot of them on both sides of the aisle. In fact, I've probably had this conversation, not just recently, but— over the years with every former governor who's in the Senate. And uh, most of them feel similar to what I just said in varying degrees, you know, that, that, that they loved being governor. And some some are like, well, the Senate's not that bad, but it's not, not as good. it's not like being governor. And other people are like, whatever you do, don't ever run for the Senate because this job is terrible. It's nothing like being governor. You don't get to do anything. You don't have any power. You don't ever pass anything.
1: And Jim Justice clearly falls into one camp there. Well, I mean, we'll see if he likes
2: it or not, if, yeah. see if he wins or not. But, uh, you know, in Virginia, almost every former governor runs for the Senate because they can only have one term, and most of them don't like it. And, you know, I think in his heart of hearts, Joe Manchin would rather be governor than senator. And, uh, I mean, Mitt Romney actually was a former governor who said to me he actually l- likes the Senate. I think he's the only one I, that, uh, <laughs> and only one I've heard from in either party. <laughs> Definitely my word there. Yeah. <laughs> So
1: on that note, you kind of said you don't want the job,
2: but you think
1: you'd win the primary, you think you'd win the general, where do you think you'd fall?
2: I think in any normal year, I would win, I could beat anybody in Maryland for any office. In a presidential year, with potentially Trump at the top of the ticket, with everyone arguing about abortion and social issues and voting against Trump in the bluest state in America, where he lost by 33 points. That'd be quite uh, an albatross around your neck and quite a hurdle to jump. So, you know, I left office with a 77% approval rating, which is higher than any elected official ever in Maryland for any office, like 20 points higher at the most. However, you know, people could say, I like Hogan. He did a great job as governor, but I don't want to make Mitch McConnell the leader of the Senate or I don't. I don't. I won't support anyone who's running on the ticket with Donald Trump. So it wouldn't just be me beating someone else. I have to beat the whole tide and everybody above me and the whole national narrative. I could probably still do it, but it would be hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so where do you
0: see yourself in twenty twenty four?
2: You know, I. That's a really. That's the best question of the day and the hardest one to answer. Um, I really care about. The country, and I'm concerned about the direction, and I really care about getting my party back. Uh, I think it should be a more traditional Republican party. And I'm not going away. I'm not giving up. I want to be a voice. However, I don't know exactly what that looks like. You know, maybe I'm going to find a candidate that I can get excited about and get involved in to help and endorse and go help support. Or maybe it's just continuing to try to. Uh, you know turn the party to a more successful party and teaching them how to win over black voters and suburban women and, and Hispanic and Asian voters which I've been able to do you know we'll, we'll see I'm gonna I'm not walking away and giving up I'm gonna continue to do everything I can to fix the party and get the country on track
0: we are excited to see what unfolds in 2024. So, we always wrap up our interviews with a fly with a fun lightning round. So, quick, fun questions, and then hopefully quick answers.
2: A set of my long ones I've been giving you earlier. I, I got you. <laughs> you can give long ones. Yeah.
0: Your father was a Maryland congressman, and you often spent time on the Hill. Favorite memory from that experience?
2: You know, um, I, I just loved being on the Hill. I, I didn't like it after college, my first job on the Hill. But when yeah. my dad was in Congress, I, I got to hang out on the House floor. I, mean, I can't, was on the House floor with him when he got sworn in. I played in the House gym with people like Jack Kemp and met George Bush. You know, the, you know, my dad was in Congress with all these cool guys, and I was a young twelve-year-old uh, going, "Wow, maybe someday I want to work here." I've changed my mind now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Second one. You spent a lot of time on the campaign trail, obviously. And we actually met you with your comms director, Mike Ricci. That's how we met you first. Yes. And he showed us a video of you chugging a beer at the Orioles season opener. Yep. So other than that story, <laughs> what's the most memorable moment you've had You know, with a voter or something on the campaign
2: trail. You know, I chugged a lot of beers with a lot of voters, and uh, that so that was a fun time at the Orioles. But uh, I, I loved the interaction with people, and uh, you know, there's just a million of them. But that was one of the more fun ones because uh, my comms people were really mad about me chugging a beer, and I, I did it anyway. But everybody loved it. Um, they said he's a regular guy. I mean, people are on Facebook or Twitter saying our governor can outdrink your governor, or you know, this is awesome. Watch Hogan chug this, Natty Bow. That was fun, Uh, but I I loved going to the games and uh, festivals and parades and stuff, just interacting with voters is my favorite part of the job.
1: Is there one that's the most memorable to you, like a specific person?
2: You know, there was a guy, we did a thing in the first campaign, I I was railing against the rain tax, they were taxing everything in Maryland, 43 tax increases, and I, I met one voter, I was going to give a speech, and this beer truck driver was flagging me down, black guy came up to me and he said, I'm a lifelong Democrat, you know, but I'm going to vote for you. I can't, I can't believe they're taxing the rain. I want some, I, could you have any of those Democrats for Hogan bumper stickers and yard signs? I'm telling my whole family and everybody to vote for you. And then, so great. I talked to him, gave him some things. I appreciate the sport. And months, months later, uh, two days before the general election, I was doing a rally with Chris Christie. And the guy was in the line. He goes, you remember me? I'm the guy driving the truck talking about the rain tax. And I was like, this guy was actually volunteering the whole campaign. Uh, black democrat because he liked what i was saying and so that was a fun experience yeah
0: and we heard you read the physical newspaper every morning physical newspaper physical newspaper not have you not have you guys newspaper. ever seen one of those
2: it's been a while what's well, it's uh they chop down trees and they you know then they turn them into paper and they, they print things on them they put ink and then they throw them on your doorstep or in your mailbox you like know, it's, it's so very old news like, that you already saw online like a couple days earlier God, but are you sure <laughs> i mean it's i think i might be the only one but i don't really do much anymore i read i can cons- i'm a big consumer of news yeah. so i i read What's like your
0: paper choice or papers well i get
2: a i have a staff person all during the whole time i was governor and still that goes through everything they think would be interesting on every topic and i look at about 50 clips um, and then so I'm, i just consume it from everywhere on any topic and I I, first thing in the morning I get up and read that but just I used to read three actual old newspapers I still have one we get the Washington Post only because my wife says we need it for the dogs like you know we need an actual newspaper in case they had an accident you know if we leave them and they don't get for a walk so we 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 had to have real newspaper but I I, I read I I do most things online
1: (laughs) (laughs) but just to close it out uh, do you have any advice for young people or college students interested in politics and public
2: service? I just think it's wonderful. First of all, I'm glad you guys are, you care about what's going on. I think it's so important that our next generation, instead of giving up on politics, which would be easy to do because it's, it's you know, it's, it's so frustrating. I think we got to get young people that care enough to be involved, regardless of which side of the aisle they're on. And um, I think you're, it's never too early to get involved. I started in politics as a kid. You know, I was active as a teenager, as a college student. You know, I was president of the Young Republicans. And, you know, I I think you can make a real difference. And you don't have to wait until later in life to actually be involved and be able to contribute. And, I mean, the future of our democracy rests on people like you. So I just thank you and all of your listeners uh, for caring enough to pay attention to this stuff. Because, you know, we're, we're ready to pass the torch. It's going to be up to you to make all these decisions.
0: Well, thank you so much for being our season finale. We had a wonderful conversation. and really appreciate your time.
2: Well, congratulations on wrapping up your season and your <laughs> last show. And uh, thank you very much for letting me join you.
1: And now we're going to hit Bed Bath & Beyond before it goes away. Yeah, it might be a deal. Get
2: some towels. <laughs> all right, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Bed Bath & Beyond. That was good. It sounds like he really does want to do be- it.
0: Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes, Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of The Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service, and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening, and fly with you soon.